Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another bright day in a still rather deserted city of Westminster in these current times, as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I am Scott Chaloner and I'm joined on today's programme by Chris Shepherdson. Chris is the founder of EP Business in Hospitality and the managing director of Chess Executive. Chris, welcome to the programme and it's great to have you, you on the air with us on this fine day. Thank you very much indeed. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for, of course, taking the time to join us. And the purpose of this discussion, really, Chris, is to establish your take on leadership. So if we dive straight in first and foremost and look at that word leader in isolation for a moment, what does that word actually mean to you and how does it resonate? Well, I think it's it's becoming a bigger and bigger topic at this point in time. I mean, leadership to me has always been about someone who can bring people together and unite them in a common vision, if you like, or common cause. And the reason why it's become a bigger issue, I think, is that people have felt there's been less and less real leadership shown over the last 10 years, rightly or wrongly. Now, companies and business have been working through some difficult times, and obviously we're in the most difficult of times right now. Mm. If ever there was a need for real leadership, it's probably now. And I think there is a need for real vision, um, a way forward that people can see and bring people together. There's been too much division, I think, over the last five years. And I think now is a real time in business, in society, all over the place, to try to bring people together and actually unite them in the right way. So leadership is becoming a bigger, bigger issue, particularly as there's also a real gap, I think, between generations, between the baby boomers and millennials and Gen Z. And there's quite a lot of tensions around the place. And actually, it's really important that we try to, to ease those tensions and make sure that people are emerging and want to be leaders. I think that one of the real problems at the moment is there's probably less people who want to be leaders at the moment than there used to be. You actually want people to really come up and take that helm and take that responsibility. So the whole thing moves forward. I think among the younger generations um, as well, Chris, uh, for those that do eventually become leaders, I think there's a little bit of a um, sort of risk-averse attitude among the younger generations, isn't there? Maybe they're afraid to take even measured risks because there is an ingrained fear of failure and they're not necessarily as willing to make mistakes and be willing to embrace them as learning curves. They just tend to uh, try and veer away from it. Uh, it's more, it, it, there's two parts of this. One, I mean, if you look at, if there's a Deloitte report that came out last year that made it very clear that younger generations lack trust the older generations mm. and there is a need you're going to take risk and you're going to take that responsibility you could actually trust the people at the top so for whatever reason rightly or wrongly um, they don't feel empowered to be able to take risk and fail so they have a greater fear of failure than probably the baby boom generation grew up with so that's one thing mm. that's got to be bridged I think the other part of the equation is you've got to remember they grew up in a different era a very safer world um, and actually, as a result, they've got different ideals and different work ethics to the, the, the kind of baby boomers who probably grew up in the 1980s, which was very different. And again, there's a chasm between the two, and, and that's got to be bridged as well. Um, so there's lack of trust is, is a key bit, and how we bridge people with different perspectives has got to be bridged as well. And also, you've got to remember the particularly Gen Z, who are growing up now, have probably got more debt than any young generation that's come onto the market. So they've got university debt. Um, they're going to be harder to get on the housing market. And that's actually barriers for them to take risk. Why would they take risk when they're already under so much stress? 
And I think we've got to somehow empower them, enable them, give them a chance to actually get on the housing ladder and find different solutions so they can see their own lives move forward. Because I think we're actually making it too difficult for new leaders to emerge at the moment. And we do need leadership now more than ever, um, of course, Chris, as you rightfully say. In fact, I understand uh, you have just um, completed a book on the uh, the topic, haven't you, uh, calling for a change in the way that many businesses interact with their employees to try and help rebuild trust and become a little bit more authentic, authentic in behaviours. Um, are there any solutions within that work of literature um, that you essentially propose for this issue? Yeah, there's lots of solutions. I mean, the ideal solution is somehow to create a marriage between an alliance a bit like between the generations between the baby boomers who probably, if we'll be honest, are in the last five years of their careers and actually really nurturing the millennials coming through. So we've got to, I think we've got to start listening better. And you've got to remember the baby boomers have been probably the most successful business generation ever, almost. They've grown and developed businesses and built more wealth than any previous generation. However, if we don't prepare the next generation to come through, then that legacy will soon be lost. So it is a responsibility of the baby boomers probably now to start really focusing on nurturing and developing that next generation through, making sure there's new voices coming through. And one of the things we've noticed, particularly during this um, period of crisis, is the people talking out loud are the same people as always. You can almost go back 20 years, in 15 years, and the leaders from those days are still the ones talking today. There isn't, if you actually look, there are less and less leaders around the age of 45 breaking through. Um, and that's what we need. We need new voices being encouraged um, to actually have that voice and to come up with their own ideas and to take that role. If that makes sense. The average age of a chief exec has gone back from 55 to 60 over the last decade. Mm. And the argument on that is everything now is about risk. And actually, experience means that probably risk is limited. But actually, there's very little evidence that actually, actually suggests that's true. So somehow, we've got to somehow say that it's okay to take risk. It's okay to fail. It's okay to have a voice and get it wrong. Um, it isn't the end of the world. Um, and we need to encourage people to be able to do that. We've made it a very open, transparent world. Where, but when anyone gets things wrong, they criticize. Um, and somehow, we've got to find a, a more compassionate approach. And hopefully, that will come out now after this period of time. Mm. Of course, there has been a renewed focus uh, during this time on um, well-being, of course, mental health um, in particular, and that's something that hopefully we can certainly uh, bring forward. Um, in terms of the hostilities between the uh, the generations, Chris, it seems to myself personally that a lot of that is driven from political differences. Is that something that you would agree with? Um, political? I, I think the politics has got too extreme, if you're asking me. Mm. Um I think the, I'm not sure actually, I think the younger generations aren't that, I mean, they're getting political again, which is actually, I think is a good sign, because I think that was actually something that drove generations previously back in the 60s and 70s, and it's good, and actually you found there's less politics probably going on in the 90s and noughties, so I don't think that's a bad thing. I just, I think the bigger issue is you've got to remember they just have a different perspective from the world, mm. and they're also a generation that's grown up with technology, where the baby boomers have adapted to technology. So you're going to get naturally very different perspectives of what's important. And actually, arguably, the millennials and Gen Z are the first generation that are completely equipped to what we're facing now, which is home working. And actually working on technology, using that much more effectively, learning how to actually communicate differently. So arguably, it is more about how we get everyone to 
just share ideas, work together. Everyone's got different strengths. And actually listen more, I think. I don't think there's probably been enough listening, if I've honest. I would certainly um, agree with uh, that last point about uh, listening, and I think that uh, you are right. The um, this ability to now adapt to uh, remote working and be able to demonstrate leadership from afar and keeping us all connected is going to be absolutely vital for the future as we begin to nurture the uh, the next uh, generation um, of leaders. Um, there's a really, you know, sorry, just, there's a really interesting thing that's happened the last, uh, over the last few weeks. There's a um, a group of chefs who created their own body. Hmm. to want to continue the good work helping communities after this crisis is over. And actually, they haven't wanted to name who they are after the very simple reason they don't believe their bosses and leaders will actually support what they're trying to do. And actually, one of the real shifts we're seeing is a much more community-focused, social focus, which goes back to your politics piece, I think. Hmm. There is a desire not for company leaders, not just to focus on share price and valuation and shareholder return, but actually think bigger. And that almost goes back to the great JFK you know, quote, don't ask what you can do for, what we can do, government can do for you, ask what you can do for your country type thing. People want a community focus. They want a bigger, a bigger picture piece that people can aspire to meet. And I think that's what's driving some of the change at the moment. And if we were to actually give um, a message of advice, if you will, to the younger generations of hopefully what will be um, emerging leaders, what should we really be telling them? What messages should we be getting out to them? Oh, it's okay to fail. I mean, it is incredibly hard. I look at my daughter. My daughter came out of university with 30,000 debt or 35,000 debt. And she's told she's going to have to, you know, obviously pay off that off, plus try somehow try and get on the housing ladder. That's remarkably difficult. And actually, they're brought up in a world where actually failure, they feel bad that they fail. The baby boomers grew up in a very different world where actually you were encouraged to have a go. Um, and just take a risk and go for it. Um, and actually, it's probably more ducking and diving in those days than people care to admit, as we all learned and adapted. And the result, people learned on the spot and actually took risk and actually set up businesses in their 20s, um, which you don't see in the same way today. And, you know, when I first started my first business, I was 26. Not one person, when I did that, said I was too young. Now, if a 26-year-old came and set up a business, they'd be told to wait to the 30 and get more experience under the belt. We've become so risk-averse, we've actually created our own barriers to progression. And actually, we just got to free that up. We've got to free up talent. It goes back to the old great Churchill quote, you know, it's not failure that's the problem. Um, and actually, success is going from one failure to another failure without ever losing enthusiasm. Because that is part of life, like it or not. I think that's completely right, uh, what you're saying there, Chris, for sure. We do need to be encouraging people to be willing to uh, really try uh, new things because without, of course, suffering the setbacks and learning from them, it's really the one way that we develop, isn't it? It's um, impossible yeah, to develop into good leaders. I think that's absolutely right because great leaders, although they may be born with certain qualities such as a certain self-motivation or a certain drive and willingness to succeed, I don't think you're just necessarily born a great leader, are you? You may have a certain presence to be able to captivate a room as such, but you have to develop your skills, don't you? You have to become a good leader as opposed to just being a ready-made one. Yeah, uh, it's funny, isn't it? it that's, that's the book I've just written exactly on this subject. It, leadership is, is about growing and listening and learning. And the modern leader isn't just about being charismatic or being a good speaker or having a vision. It's about how you can bring people together, but you listen to what's going on. And that comes from knowledge and learning from knowledge. Mm-hmm. And actually, one big thing about leadership now is about how much knowledge you can bring together. 
which goes on to that networking because actually networking seen has become seen as already you know strange thing people don't want to do but actually relationships and networking is how you learn how you gain knowledge mm. and actually that's another thing we need to encourage is people to network again and come together listen and talk socialize more um, on a one-to-one basis as much as anything else and how the power of relationships because that is how we learn and how we bring things together um, so I'm hopeful as we come out of this, actually, there's a new desire for that. I'm sure after we've all been in lockdown for so many, so many weeks, we want those relationships. I certainly want to go back and just start interacting again. I can't wait. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually, for me, it's exactly how I learn and build knowledge. Um, so, yeah, you're right. Leaders emerge. They evolve. And actually, leaders will come at different times and go at different times. Mm-hmm. And we'll succeed and we'll fail all the time. But that's okay. Um, so it's, it's, I think one of the big things that has to come out, which I'm hoping now, is we're to get we're less judgmental society. Mm. We're get more compassionate because I think that's what people want. And if you're more compassionate, you say failure is okay, and getting things wrong is okay, then actually we'll see a whole new generation emerge. But we've got to nurture it, we've got to invest in it, and we've got to give it a chance. We certainly do, and um, the point that you mentioned there about encouraging people to look to others for that advice um, is incredibly important. I believe Nelson Mandela once said, surround yourself with people who are better than you are. And it's so important to recognise as an emerging leader that you're not a lone wolf, are you? It's very much about the fact that you can learn from others, you can network, you can have mentors. And in many ways, people like mentors can be some of the most influential leaders out there. Oh, absolutely. And actually, the worst people are those, you know, there's a guy called Alan Layton, he's the chief exec of the ASDA back in the 1990s, early 2000s, they used to talk about the business prevention squad. And every business has a group of people who almost are negative. And actually, one of the real challenges of all leadership is how do you free talent up within a business? And we've all come across them in every walk of life. Is that person who always tries to be the barrier to try and do something positive. And actually, probably we've got too many of those now. So freeing up talent, freeing up voices, freeing up business to take risk is actually what we need to do now. Because um, actually, particularly after this period of time we're going to rebuild, it isn't going to happen unless we actually do that. Mm, can certainly see where you're coming from, Chris. And um, if we do, before we wrap things up um, on the programme, think about the future just for a moment. Over the next 12 months, what is it that you personally would like to see in terms of leadership? And also from a business perspective, what do you hope to achieve over that time as well as we move through the current situation? Well, actually, look, I'm really positive about the future. I think that we've, we've already seen some fantastic actions that will create a more compassionate approach to communities and societies. I think businesses, I'm hoping, will take lead from this period of time and actually have a social focus in how they act as well as a business focus. I think every business has a role to play in the community um, and has a role to invest in that community to help it grow and develop. Um, but my bigger hope is actually we actually now start seeing the baby booms help and nurture that next generation. Because like it or not, they are going to take over the next five years. And actually, we need to make sure they feel prepared and confident for taking the challenges ahead. There's some great talent around, and let's just help them. And if you go back to probably some of the best political leaders we've had over the last 20, 30 years, actually a lot of them were in their 40s or early 50s, whether it's Clinton, whether it's Blair, whether it's Obama. And they weren't old men. They were actually in their 40s, all of them, as they came to power. And probably they've been the most significant figures in some ways we've had. 
So actually, it's not about age. It is about people who have a voice, who can actually unite people. And let's free that, that, talent, that pool of talent up because it's huge. It hasn't yet to be heard. We have to, exactly. Um, leadership as well as empowering people to really ha- have their voices heard, know that they're being listened to um, as well. Yeah, look, and that's the bit that hasn't happened. Mm. You know, they haven't used the word empowerment, but over the last 10 years, there's been less empowerment than ever. And actually, that's what, exactly what we've got to get back to. Is I, I call it enabling rather than empowering. Mm. Um, you've got to enable people to go and, and actually to do action. It's giving the confidence, isn't it, to really go yeah, beyond their own comfort zone and sort of push yeah. the boundaries, as it were. Yeah, absolutely right. And that's why it's sport, great sports players we all love, because that's what they do, that moment of genius that makes mm. us all excited. Um, and that's what makes sport, and it's black and white. Um, but actually, in business, it's more complicated, and it's how you actually do learn as you go, because actually things are happening so fast and changing so fast. You do need good listeners who can actually understand what's going on. And I think it's also important that we recognise good leadership within business um, a lot more going forward as well, isn't it? Because we do associate leadership with politics a lot in this country. We associate it with sports and celebrity. And the business world can sometimes, um, at least in terms of recognition for it, um, sort of fall by the wayside um, a little bit, can't it? And that needs to really, really be remembered. Look, actually, I'd argue that business leadership is the most important of all of it now. Mm. Um, If you look at the traditional pillars of society, most of them have been eroded or fallen away. There's probably less respect now for politicians or certainly pre this crisis than obviously it's a long, long period of time. The same if you look at the church, the same if you look at doctors, family family doctors or whether lawyers, all the traditional pillars we kind of grew up with have been eroded, but businesses can fill that gap. So business has a real important role to play uh, in communities and society uh, to fill that place. And actually, just in terms of role modelling and how it can help in sustainability, environment, help the homeless, you name it, um, it can actually lead the way wherever others have fallen down. I think that's completely right, Chris. It's a shame that we are just about out of time on the uh, the programme uh, today because I could pretty much uh, talk about this um, all uh, morning and all oh, afternoon for subject, sure. Huh? It's a fantastic subject. And I think actually from a listener's perspective, Chris, it would be wonderful um, in the next year or so to actually have you back on the programme with us just to see how things are changing as we enter this new normal. And hopefully oh, see... Look, actually, I'm quite bullish about the future. Mm. I think there's lots of good to come out. Absolutely. It would be great to see some of these uh, hopes um, for the future of leadership uh, born out uh, for sure. Um, I've got to say, Chris, it's been a thoroughly insightful, but also really enjoyable experience um, having you on the programme with us today. I can't thank you enough for joining us. And no, it's my pleasure. Do my pleasure. also, most importantly, take care and stay safe um, with everything still going on in the meantime as well. And we'll certainly be looking forward to catching up. Okay. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Chris, for sure. That was Chris Shepherdson, the founder of EP Business in Hospitality and the managing director of Chess Executive. Coming up next on the programme today, I will be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State, and also the chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Now, despite being blind from birth, Lord Blunkett rose to prominence to become one of the most notable politicians of his generation, holding a number of senior positions in Tony Blair's cabinet and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He was elevated to the House of Lords as Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough back in August of 2015. I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew enjoyed speaking with him and that's coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. 
Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks, those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. 
and of course um, ensuring because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks that they'll also take account of going into the the cyber security side effectively as well the more we are online the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become and that's something to think about as well how important is strong leadership at the moment well i actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself and there's been ups and downs with the prime minister's severe illness but all the way through the public and private sector people have to use the jargon stepped up and they've shown uh, local regional national level the kind of leadership that britain historically was very good at regrettably we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons uh, but maybe we will in future so i think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods uh, including for instance shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system um, the food chain and the like uh, but also i think in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's a, had his life in... Uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly 
different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of... Um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different Prime Ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. My experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue all of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated 
their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated, mm -hmm. scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would. people criticise the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized uh, 
technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy not just national economy but also the world economy Um, Now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. 
and therefore we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May on the side of the Hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer 
and I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas with confidence with the ability to pull teams around them above all to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it now of course one of the biggest problems secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-semitism problem uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning uh, what's your response uh, to that report and what does secure need to do in response well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of, us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially 
in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority in historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.